0: If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. The prophet Isaiah, you'll find our scripture reading here on page 573 in the Black Pew Bible. This morning, as I said before the service, we're beginning a series. We're calling an ancient Christmas, the coming of Jesus in Isaiah. And through the end of the year, Lord willing... Uh, We'll look at some of the prophecies of Isaiah. These were given 700 years before the coming of Jesus into this world. And in considering these prophecies, we'll see how trustworthy God's promises are as he brings them to fulfillment. And we'll see the hope that he gives his people about their future, even amidst suffering. And so uh, who among us doesn't need to grow in confidence in God's word as well as uh, hope in his good plans for us? And so this morning we turn to Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 7 where God promises, uh, perhaps a passage really familiar to you, God promises a child, a son uh, who will carry the weight of God's kingdom and carry the welfare of God's people on his shoulders Let me invite you to pay attention then to the word of God from Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. And with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, enlighten the eyes of our hearts in the knowledge of Christ. Show us his glory and his grace. In Jesus' name I pray amen what does god do here what kind of enjoyment will his people have and why is jesus able to bring that about i want you to think about those three things what does god do here in this passage what does he say he will do well god gives to his suffering people the promise of a hero that's verse 6. That's one of the titles of Jesus. Mighty God or El Gibor, God the strong warrior is the language. One of the encouraging storylines that so often comes out as we've seen in the midst of these various evil acts of terrorism we see around the world. One of the encouraging things that comes out is the story of heroes, rescuers, deliverers, uh, just... Uh, just a few years ago now in San Bernardino, California. Some of you remember it, December of uh, 15. Denise Peraza, an employee of the health department where this occurred, says she can't remember much from the chaotic minutes when the gunman shot over 60 rounds into a room of people, killing 14 and wounding 22. She herself was shot in the back. But she does remember, she says, Shannon Johnson, one of those who died, a fellow employee and friend, wrapping his left arm around her, holding her close to him as they huddled behind a chair, shielding her with his body, saying to her, I got you. I got you. Johnson did not survive, but he was a rescuing hero to Denise. And in doom and gloom, he was light and hope to her. In dark places, when people are oppressed and helpless, a hero coming to the rescue is a welcome friend. And here in Isaiah, God promises this welcome friend. To his suffering people, a child will be born to you. A son is given to you. The promise comes to them as a suffering people. They're suffering terribly, uh, and I want you to see that in the passage. Just ten years after this is given, the Assyrian Empire will swarm the northern tribes of Israel. 722. And decimate them, carting off some of them as the spoils of war and uh, to be slaves in exile and to take over the region. And so just prior to this passage, at the end of chapter 8, verse 22 in your English Bible, if you look there, it says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. See, the passage is referring to that yet very shortly future event when life in Israel will be distressed and darkness and the people of God will be crushed and families will be torn apart and some will die by the hand of the Assyrians. But will they be hopeless in that event? No. Isaiah will have already promised them a deliverer, one in whom they are eternally safe God says look the future is brighter though it is dark verse 9 chapter chapter 9 verse 1 but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish there's going to be anguish but after anguish there will be no gloom it may feel like God says to his people always winter and never Christmas but Christmas is coming God says to his people you see the bible is absolutely realistic and hopeful it doesn't say the world is a great place everything will be fine if you just trust in jesus all will be well always on this earth it doesn't say that if we could all just get together we could create the universal brotherhood of mankind and everybody everywhere would always live at peace with one another No, the Bible says this world is broken. We as people are broken. We are, as the New Testament puts it, uh, hating and hurting one another. Uh, And that's actually normal and sinful. It's the normal course of events since the fall, it's not the way it was meant to be. It is sinfully normal that we need to be rescued. And so God promises these people amidst uh, a terrible suffering, uh, he promises them a child king. And verses 2 to 7 then are so very clearly about that child king and so clearly fulfilled in Jesus that, um, that some have said, well, then um, this couldn't, uh, could not have uh, been written by Isaiah or it isn't about Jesus and must be about somebody else. Um, Some have said, look, these words aren't about Jesus because some of the language here is past tense and present tense. It's not all future tense, but we know that Jesus is 700 years in the future. And so they say, well, it can't be about that child king. It must be about some other king. Some have speculated like King Hezekiah, uh, but King Hezekiah doesn't come anywhere close to fulfilling The language here of an everlasting king and kingdom. And besides, the use of past and present and not just future, about future events is a prophetic way of speaking in the Bible. Uh, Describing future events as though they have already happened is as though they are accomplished fact is a very common way in which both the Old and New Testament speaks of future events. It, because it's telling you these future events are so certain, it's as if they have already occurred. Uh, the New Testament, for instance, does this in a very encouraging way for any who trust in Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, the Apostle Paul says this. Now, he says some things we don't have time to unpack, but just listens to what he says uh, of the experience of believers Uh, Speaking of believers, he says, these are those whom God has predestined, those whom he predestined, predestined, he also called, those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now look, what's he saying? I mean, very shortly, he's saying... Um, those who have trusted in Jesus, he said God planned your salvation, God called you to his son, God justified you, meaning he pardoned all your sin, and he accepts you as righteous in his eyes because of Jesus, and he has glorified you. All those other things are past tense in the experience of one who believes in Jesus, but glorification... I mean, what Christian would say they have arrived in the state of glorification? As my old pastor put it, if, if this is glory, you know, I don't want to live here, right? But look at the way the Apostle Paul is saying that. It is so certainly true that those who have been called are justified and those who are justified are glorified that God can speak of it as though it has already been accomplished because it is certainly true. God will not go back on his promises to us and God will not give us salvation by half measures. So this kind of prophetic way of speaking is common and that's how Isaiah speaks when he says, uh, for unto us a child is given and a son is born, though it's 700 years into the future. Well, some say, uh, you know, in, in light of that, and since it's not Hezekiah, um, well, then, okay, it, it is about Jesus, but then, of course, we know that it couldn't have been written before Jesus. It had to have been written after Jesus and then inserted into Isaiah because they would say, of course, predictive prophecy is an impossibility certainly about events that many centuries down the road they say it can't happen they say that because either they believe there is no god or that if there is a god he isn't the kind of god who either knows the future or the kind of god who makes certain the future or the kind who would ever tell us about it if he did or could tell us about it some people would say so they say that someone around the time of Jesus sort of slipped this into Isaiah and then makes it sound like it's a it's a foretelling. But But God does exist. He's truly God over all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He controls the future and he guarantees the safety and well-being of all who trust in him, in his son Jesus. And so predictive prophecy is not a problem for those who trust in jesus and believe the bible it's actually an incentive to trust in him the fact that he knows and tells you ahead of time and then it comes true is a reason to trust in his word god even boasts of his ability to do this in isaiah chapter 46 verses 9 and 10 remember the former things of old for i am god and there is no other I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. You see what God says? He says, listen to me, trust in me. So Isaiah is not some fictional story where the prophecies are fulfilled um, after uh, they are uh, Before they are written and then the account is written after the fact and inserted into Isaiah. In fact, uh, though we didn't have a copy of Isaiah in Hebrew in our modern era, modern meaning since the time of Christ, we didn't have a copy of it until about the 10th century after Jesus from which we get our various copies from the Hebrew manuscript. Uh, a shepherd boy discovered uh, dead sea scrolls in a cave in Israel that date to well before Jesus, and it was an identical copy of Isaiah that we now have in the 10th century. People said, well, it would have been all messed around with. But no, these prophecies were there, and they predate Jesus. I mean, even history shows us that. So the point is this. The future is foretold, fulfilled in Jesus. You can trust God and his word. And so the people of God were comforted even as they were about to face great trouble and trial. God has a good purpose for those things and it's not the end. It doesn't end in despair and loss. But it ends with uh, things much better and better forever in the everlasting king who will come. So put your hope in him because not a one of us is going to live forever here. Whether it's the Assyrians who take us or disease itself now that's what God says he's going to send this hero Uh, what will his people enjoy those who trust in him Uh, let me point you to three things in the passage in verses one and two uh, he will bring light into darkness verses three to five liberation into oppression and verses six and seven leadership to his kingdom and his people first light is brought into darkness, verses 1 and 2. They were in darkness and gloom, it says, middle of verse 1, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. It was in in contempt, it was in darkness, it was in gloom, and anguish. These northern lands of Zebulun and Naphtali cover the area west and southwest of the Sea of Galilee, and they were the first part of the nation of Israel, Uh, through which the Assyrians came they suffered the blow first and because of what the Assyrians did then in mixing up the culture and importing people from all over there the religion in the land got all kind of mixed up in in and with every kind of conceivable uh, Canaanite, uh, ancient Assyrian, ancient Egyptian practices as all those peoples were brought in and so things like Cult prostitution was practiced at various shrines in the land of Galilee, even up in the days of Jesus, uh, to satisfy the, the appetites of the gods. Uh, the children were sometimes sacrificed to Molech, the god of the Ammonites, in the land of Galilee. And it's not like every Israelite kept themselves pure from the world as this went on in their culture. Even King Ahaz sacrificed his children that way and so did Manasseh so there were these outward manifestations of inward spiritual darkness there was outward moral darkness that was that was because of inward blindness of heart the apostle Paul puts it this way he describes the darkness of those who don't trust in the Lord in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 and following now this I say Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The Apostle Paul says, Look, that's the condition of everyone who's not changed in the heart. We have a hard heart, manifests in all kinds of darkness. Yet God says that darkness in that land is not going to last. He's going to bring light into darkness. And to verse 1, in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the nations. Where darkness has come, where the Assyrians have overrun, now light will shine. And as we have been reading in the Gospel of Matthew, we even looked at this passage. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 pointedly goes into Galilee to preach and to teach and to heal, to be the light of the world In a dark place. Even fulfilling verse 16. uh, Matthew chapter 4 verse 16. Fulfilling verse 2 here. In Isaiah the people dwelling in darkness. Have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region. And shadow of death on them has a light. Dawned. So he the light of the world. came not just to the Jews. But to the Gentiles. Not just to Israel. But to the descendants of the Assyrians. And the Egyptians. And the Canaanites. And He. Was victorious in bringing light. in uh, In 1959, uh, a New Zealander named Desmond Oatridge and his Australian wife Jennifer Jennifer began Bible translation work among the Benumerians of New Guinea. This tribe had been ravaged. Uh, by disease and attacks in the 1930s. And now, almost 30 years later, when they began their work, the tribe had been whittled down to about 150 souls. Nine years later, the Outritches had their translation of the Gospel of Mark ready. And it was the first book of the scriptures that the Binumerians had seen in their own language. And the printed books came, and they held a ceremony as a tribe, to celebrate the occasion. A ben blindfolded with a black cloth headed a long line of tribal people as they marched around the village square to arrive at the missionary Desmond who was reading a translated gospel. And upon arriving, the man removed the blindfold symbolizing that the scriptures had come and his people were no longer in darkness but could see the way. They could see the light, the light of the world. Light shining in darkness. It's the Isaiah 9 pattern. It's the ben pattern. It's frankly the pattern of this missionary, John Chow, who went to the island people of North Sentinel Island who were living in obscurity and ignorant and unaware of the gospel as far as we know because nobody knows their language and protected the nation of India says but we might also add kept from contact with the outside world and the gospel and so John Chow went there to bring the light of the glory of God in Jesus to them. I wonder, have you seen the light? The Apostle Paul says of believers that God has shown the light of the glory of God into our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. Have you seen in Jesus light, truth, goodness, and has it transformed you? Do you have a new heart? Not a hard heart plunging into darkness. That's the first benefit and blessing and enjoyment that the people will have because Jesus comes. The second is liberation from the oppressed. Notice back in verses 3 to 5 here, he'll bring liberation. Uh, Verse 4, you see... Why they need it. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken. It speaks of suffering laid on the backs. It speaks of affliction. The vocabulary recalls Egypt. Yoke, burden, shoulder, and oppressor are all the language of slavery in Egypt. Oppression is is nothing new. End of verse 4 recalls Midian God will break them as at Midian, and you and I are supposed to think sermon illustration, right? We're supposed to remember Midian, what happened at Midian. Well, it was a tremendously encouraging time when the people were oppressed and God raised up a rescuer. Gideon, you remember this story. You may remember that the Midianites had come down on Israel and God raised up Gideon. And what did Gideon do? He assembled an army of 30,000 men, fighters who were actually farmers. And what did God do? God whittled the 30,000 down to 300. And what weapons did they have? Not assault rifles or grenades. Clay jars they had. Twinkling lights and voices yelling. That's what they used. And God gave them the victory. And God did it that way with so few, with so little weaponry, to prove that it was not by might, not by power, but by God's spirit that he would accomplish his victory. So it will be. Isaiah says. In this coming day of liberation. The people will enjoy a victory. That they don't win for themselves. God wins it. By the spirit of God. Not in power but in weakness. Not with an army but on a cross. And in the language of verse 5. They'll be liberated. And everything combustible. Will be Fuel for the bonfire. It speaks of the boots of the tramping warriors. It speaks of the garments stained and rolled in blood. All those, it says, will be burned. The war is over, in other words. The people have not fought that final battle. They have entered the battlefield only after the fighting is done. The enemy is destroyed and disarmed. And they get to share in the victory. And so... Uh, Jesus has come Jesus has come to destroy the work of the devil he has come to destroy not humanity he came that humanity might be saved but he came to stand against all the forces of evil in spiritual places the forces of darkness and he came to rescue us from our own moral evil and so it's a cause for rejoicing and here in chapter 9 verse 3 there's a kind of Christmas celebration When it says farmers and soldiers have their time of joy at the completion of their work and they enjoy the rewards for it. Joy, he says, will come like when you harvest the grain and the farmer rejoices at the produce. Or joy like when you receive the spoils of war because you've been victorious in battle. So Jesus is the farmer, Jesus is the soldier, and the harvest and the spoil is his people as he rescues us from war. As the New Testament puts us, God has delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Do you know the joy of that victory this Christmas? Are you celebrating the freedom you have, the liberation you have from the tyranny of the devil, from the finality of the grave, from the horrors of hell? Jesus has rescued us from all these things. And not only does he bring light into darkness and liberation for the oppressed, but finally, you see here in verses 6 and 7 the other thing his people will enjoy, and that is his leadership. He brings leadership. To the kingdom of God. Verse 3. He multiplies the nation. He gathers the Gentiles into his family. And it grows and expands. And verse 6 it says. The government of that nation is on his shoulders. He carries the weight of its rule. Hebrews says of Jesus. That he upholds all things. By the word of his power. That is he bears everything along. To the end purposes of God. He carries it along to its appointed goal. He has the whole world in his hands. His people's shoulders then are delivered from the weight. Because the burden of rule is placed on the weight of this son's shoulders. And he rules with justice, as the passage goes on to say, and righteousness. And he guarantees the ultimate victory of good over evil. So that you and I can do what? Take our fears, our insecurities... And dump them on him. He can handle them. So that you and I can take our just cause to him. Because he can make it right. Now why can he do any of this? Why can he do any of these things? It's all in his name. His name... His names are his qualification here in Isaiah. And you see those in verse 6. And this is where we'll end as we think through these qualifications. Notice in the first place he's wise. End of verse 6, he's called wonderful counselor. He's a wonder of a counselor or a supernatural counselor. The Hebrew word wonderful here is the closest thing in Hebrew for supernatural, miraculous, miraculous. That's the kind of counselor he, he is. Now, some of your older translations, King James, um, says wonderful comma counselor comma. And maybe if you listen to Handel's Messiah, you hear that language picked up as they sing wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father. But rather, these two words ought to be held together. Wouldn't be wrong to translate it that way, but because all three other names are a set of two Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's probably better to see here, Wonderful Counselor together as a description of his divine knowledge and insight. There's nothing too difficult about your life and experience that he can't untangle. He isn't confused by the problem that you're in. He has the treasures of all wisdom and knowledge at his disposal. And he's not only wise enough to save, but strong enough to save. He's secondly, his name is the mighty God, El Gabor, the mighty warrior God. He's not just like God or representing God to us. He is God in the flesh. This is one of those Old Testament passages that teaches you Jesus is truly God the New Testament likewise emphasizes this don't don't ever let anybody tell you the New Testament doesn't tell you that Jesus is God John chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us the word was with God distinct from God and yet the word was God truly God God with God and that God became flesh and, and the true God became flesh. Um, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 says, but, but of the Son, the Bible says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Bible, even the New Testament, clearly calls Jesus God. Because He is. He's God of the flesh. You would even see this in Isaiah, if you turned ahead to Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, where it says, In that day, the remnant of Israel... And the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but they will lean on the Lord or Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel in truth. And a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. The remnant will return to who? El Gabor. Who is El Gabor? He's Yahweh. He's the Holy One of Israel. In truth, that's Isaiah chapter 10. The, the point is this Jesus is just as much God as the Father is God. And He came in the flesh. Yes, He veiled His glory, but He didn't cease to be the glory or the deity. And he, so He was strong enough to save you no matter what your weakness. And thirdly, He cares. He's the everlasting Father. That's, again, verse 6. In ancient Israel, kings and judges and rulers were considered fathers of the people. It's the title of reverence here. Jesus, it's saying, has father-like qualities of compassion and care for his people. He loves them. He looks out for them. He protects them. He provides for them as a father has compassion on his children. Isaiah is not confusing the messiah promised here with the what we might call the first person of the trinity god the father he's not confusing the second person with the first person god the son and god the father but he's saying this god the son in the flesh will rule like a father over his people and that rule will be everlasting Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So that there's total security in a kingdom under a king who loves you and rules over all things for you. And then finally, what is it you will enjoy? You will enjoy peace. He is the prince of peace. He creates a kingdom of peace. He's the administrator of wholeness. And well being. And peace with God. And so the angels come to the shepherds. At the birth of Jesus. And announce good news of great joy. For all the people right. And they say glory to God in the highest. And on earth. Peace. He accomplishes peace. He reconciles. Those who are at war. He reconciles God to rebellious humanity and rebellious humanity to God. And he then is the only source of that reconciliation, the only place in which we can be at peace with God. Outside of him, you're still at war. Inside Christ, in trusting Christ, God is at peace with you. Jesus says to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So he can save, he can save because of who he is. He's the wonderful counselor, he's the mighty God, he's the everlasting father, he's the prince of peace. He's wise enough to untangle any problem. He's strong enough to overcome any weakness. He's loving enough and long-lastingly loving enough to outlast your continuing struggles with sin in this world to bring, bring you safely at peace with God in heaven because he has made peace between God and you on the cross. And so I just ask you, do you know this hero? Do you know this wise and strong and loving and peace-creating hero? Has he brought light into your darkness? Has he given you liberation from the spiritual forces of darkness that oppress you, then let him lead you. Submit to him as your prince. But if you don't think you need his liberation, if you don't think you need his leadership, if you're saying to yourself, I'm doing just fine without him, then the Bible would say you're still in darkness and you have no light you don't even understand your predicament you're so blind because of the darkness of your own hard heart may jesus then rescue us from that darkness let's pray father thank you for the gift of your own beloved son this child and he grew up to be a hero and a redeemer Grant that each of us would know the blessing of belonging to him and the hope of glory forever with him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.